Hello and welcome to the Next Level Sunday Show. I am Tim, and I'm going to be here solo today with Abigail Spanberger, the Democratic congresswoman that is always on the tip of the tongue of never-Trumpers when asked to name a Democrat that they like. Uh, She represents the Richmond suburbs. Uh, It is a great talk about her career as a CIA operative. Did you know she had to be like undercover and have a cover story and lie to people? Anyway, you'll hear the details. Uh, Being a mom while being in Congress. Uh, We also get into a little more politics than usual for the Sunday show, but a decent amount of politics. One thing was we taped this before the House Republicans voted on their debt ceiling package, whatever you want to call it, to prove that they could unite to pass a bill that would increase the debt ceiling if they also repealed, you know, all the good things that Joe Biden did over the past two years. It's dead on arrival, but it's it's the opening of a negotiation point. And so that is a news update since we taped this interview. But you're really going to enjoy it. Just really quick, a few other plugs. Make sure to follow us on YouTube if you haven't. If you're just getting this on the podcast apps, like us, comment. Send this to a friend, you know, send it to somebody that you're going to like. And if you're anywhere near New York City, come on up and see us May 18th. It'll be me and Charlie first, and then Sarah JVL and Molly Jong Fast next. Uh, it is going to be a great live show. Come on and check that out. Up next, Representative Abigail Spanberger. But first, our friends at Acetung. I'm here with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, uh, never Trump favorite, Democrat, uh, Virginia 7th District. Congresswoman, good to be here with you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm excited to be with you. Uh, we got to start out with a little bit of drama between us, I, ju- okay. I think. I just think that it's important to just get it all out on the table because I did bump into you last November for the circus and off camera. You pulled me aside and you said you had a bone to pick. So let's just hash it out here. Now, we, now we're on camera-ish on YouTube. The group that I founded back when I was a Republican in good standing, America Rising, you know, did some dark arts targeting you. And, and it felt like it was a little below the belt. So let's, let's hash it out. What happened for the listeners who don't know? Oh, back in 2018. This goes back, back in 2018. I was gone by then, okay? I left in 2016, obviously, over over the orange man. Um, So I was gone, but still, many of my employees were probably guilty. So anyway, continue. Let's start there. Okay, well, so they got their hands on my SF-86. And for those who may not be aware, that's the National Security Questionnaire. So if you are going through the background check process... You fill out that form and basically put sort of every single detail about your life on that form, all the places you've lived, all of the things. And they pushed it out trying to shop various different stories about me. And then forever and a day had some of my information, including my social security number, up on their website. So it is true. When I had my chance, I did uh, bring up... Tim. This is what I don't understand. How did they get it? Like, is that a normal document? It just wasn't redacted correctly? Like, what was the... It was not redacted at all. And what happened was there was a full investigation into how it happened. And so they had requested, in fairness, I guess you can request anything. It was not supposed to go to them. They had no right to request it. And perhaps there could have been a wholly redacted information. Like, they had requested information related to all of my federal employment, and incorrectly, an employee who received that Freedom of Information Act request incorrectly mailed off a giant packet of all of my forms. And they just published it. Which isn't how it's supposed to be. And so then they you know, uploaded it and just started pushing it out to reporters and then put a bunch of it online. What I never understood is what did they think, these little nerds that I used to hire, like what did they think was the hit there? They, they thought it was damning that people would know that you were... Oh, oh, this is the best part. I had been a substitute teacher at the embassy school associated with, well, with a variety of different Middle Eastern countries, but with the embassy school for Saudi Arabia, you know, and we, the United States, we have embassy schools overseas where we'll, you know, send our kids. And I had been a long-term sub there teaching English first in in between graduate school and when I began my career in public service. And so they made all sorts of jumps in terms of trying to call me a terrorist and all sorts of, you know, terrible things 
<laughs> imputing entire communities as well as teachers, as well as all the things. <laughs> so from your perspective, I think probably having your social security number out there, you know, your private info was probably really gets under your skin. As a practitioner of opposition research, the thing that offends me is just how weak that is. I mean, that would have... I hope that I would have, you know, pocket vetoed that. Had one of the nerds come to me and said, hey, we're going to try to make this blonde lady from Richmond into a terrorist sympathizer because she substitute taught while working for the government at a Arab school. It doesn't really land for me. Yes, the lady who went on to yeah. work counterterrorism at CIA. Yeah, not, right? not the you best know. hit. Well, that's why you're in Congress so. now and you know, they're still toiling away at, on LexisNexis. Okay, I want to go back to your CIA career, but I wanted to make sure we're, we're good on that. I'm glad we got that out in the open. Yeah, we're good on that now. It was kind of my fault because I probably hired the person that did it, but it wasn't my fault because I, I quit. So, you know, we're, we're cool. Okay. All right, let's do a little politics. And then I want, we had the Sunday show where we, you know, do more, we get to know people. So I want to do CIA stuff, you know, as much as you're allowed to tell me. I want to do a little bit on on being a mom. We've got some rapid fire questions that I think are going to, you know, be you know a little challenging. So I want you to brace for those. But first, we have to do a little politics. The debt ceiling stuff. We're taping this on Monday, so there might be a vote between now and when we yeah. actually air this. So no sense, you know, doing punditry predicting. But I'm I'm curious. McCarthy right now is trying to jam through, you know, this act that has no chance of passing the Senate that has you know very severe cuts, but would raise the debt limit. In order to do it, he has to get all 218 or all but four of the 218. It doesn't seem like any Democrats are going to be on, on board with this. And I guess his strategy is that they pass that. That means maybe Democrats come to the table. Like, What's your sense for like what the Republican kind of strategy is right now as it relates to the debt ceiling? As of right now, and, and so this is Monday going into the week, yeah. uh, it's a bit of frenzy. I wouldn't call it a strategy. It's more of a attempting to make good on a whole host of conflicting promises that presumably Speaker McCarthy made in order to become Speaker McCarthy. The reality is, is that we have the duty and the job of governing, and the focus needs to be how do we get a debt ceiling bill to the president's desk, right? Performative politics when it comes to something as important and foundational as like our economy really is, I think, problematic and, and certainly doesn't necessarily speak to a focus on governing. And right now, it seems as though July is the time frame where this becomes catastrophic. It could be as early as June, but it's the end of April. That means it's right around the corner for us to hash out any differences with the Senate, for us to get a bill to the president's desk and, you know, headed into this week, it just looks like the efforts are going to be to try and prove a point rather than actually address the, the needs of the U.S. economy. So you've done better than some of your colleagues at Speaking Republican. So, you know, you get some Republicans that come to you and say, but Congresswoman, but Abigail, like, shouldn't you guys be negotiating, you know, and th that might be a clown show over there, but isn't there something to this? Like, at some point, like, this is the system. Like, you know, what's your response to kind of that? critique coming from the right? This is a, a challenge that I hear from constituents. And so it's one that I, I know well, and I'm happy to answer it, which is there is a process in place for addressing how we spend our money looking into the future. That's the budget process. It's the appropriations process. And I welcome anyone anywhere to put forth real challenges to how we spend our money. And if it's something I think we should be spending taxpayer dollars on, I'll argue it till the cows come home. The value of everything from conservation programs to food security programs to funding our military and our national security agencies. I mean, the list goes on and on, and I will justify the support that I give to those programs. What we spend our money on moving forward is very different from what we have already chosen to spend our money on and how we pay for the things we have already spent our money on. And that's what we're talking about when it comes to the debt ceiling. And so when I have this conversation, and I have had it on Capitol Hill, I've certainly had it across my district, my answer to this is, these are absolutely complementary discussions. What do we do about our debt? We need to pay our bills. And what do we spend our money on moving into the future? They're wholly complementary. But you can't say, you know what? I'm not going to pay my bills because I want to argue about what we're going to spend money on next year, right? You just, you can't do that. And even when my Republican colleagues will say, you know, you got to pay your credit card bills and, you know, you, you got to 
buckle down your budget and talk about what you're spending money on. A hundred percent. But nobody says, I'm not going to pay my credit card bills while my wife and I sit down at the table and discuss all the things we're going to spend money on over the next year or two years into the future, right? Because your credit card bill still comes, right? And your credit score keeps going like in the wrong direction. And so essentially that's the conversation they're trying to have. And so my point is let's have all the conversations that we want about what we're spending our money on a hundred percent, but that happens through the budget and the appropriations process right now playing games with what we've already spent our money on in the full faith and credit of the United States, that that's not how we do this. And, you know, that's really, I think, the disconnect yeah. that is happening right now on Capitol Hill. And McCarthy's plan to just do broad across the top cuts, you know, in principle, it doesn't sound like it's that much. But then he gives the caveat, I don't want to impact defense spending, which I don't want to impact defense spending. So I'm fine with that, except everything that he would be impacting that's not defense spending means an actual 22% cut on average across the board for everything else, right? right? And when you think a 22% haircut across federal spending for anything that's not defense, I mean, that's substantial. Yeah, that's real. Hundo P is, I think, what the kids are saying these days when you're going, they're saying 100%. I don't know if you're, if that's if that's a fit for your personal brand. So I don't the, think it works for me. Um, I have a 14-year-old daughter who most likely would judge me severely. <laughs> okay. It's nice to have a teen in the house. I need a teen in the house to keep me in check on this stuff. Um, we do fantasy politics here. This is the thing that, frust- that I wonder about all this is there's a lot of discussion about the closet normals in the Republican caucus. You're going further than me these days. I mean, you're hanging out with Chip Roy, doing deals with Chip Roy. At last convo I had with Chip Roy was not that pleasant on his end, really. I would thought I was pleasant. Um, and um, the uh, maybe he might tell a different story. I don't know. You could ask uh, him. But, now, uh, now I have to ask him. Yeah, you'll ask. You can report back. <laughs> it was lengthy, though. The thing is, though, like on something like this, on the debt ceiling, why aren't there just this group of Republicans who could work with you guys and say, hey, here's a reasonable other alternative, right? Like, we're going to increase the debt ceiling, but you guys got to work, you know, work with us. And we got like, it, it only takes six of them, right? And you're in this majority. And a lot of people say that to me. They're like, oh, where are the normal Republicans on this? Where are the, you know, the same names get always used? Don, where's Don Bacon? Where's Nancy Mace? You know, what is the answer to that, right? Like, why can't you guys peel off a handful of the normal Republicans and put pressure on on the other side to raise the debt ceiling? Well, I, I have a couple answers to that. The first is, I don't know. I mean, for me, you know, I was fine voting against my party at various different times along the way. I was fine voting against, you know, there's a piece of legislation that we Democrats put forward during the height of the pandemic that had no path in the Senate, and I voted against it predominantly just on principle that people are hurting, people are dying, and I don't think we should be wasting valuable floor time with performative politics. Certainly, this is, it is not a global pandemic, but we are in a circumstance where we're down to the wire as it relates to really making sure that we don't hurt the U.S. economy. And with it, you know, your ability to get a mortgage, your ability to get a car loan, people's retirements, right? I I had a constituent come up to me over the weekend and say, you know, level with me. What should I be doing with my retirement accounts? I'm really worried. You know, my answer for the record is I'm not a financial advisor, but I understand your worry. And what I can tell you is I'm trying everything possible to avoid economic catastrophe that impacts certainly the global economy, but also people. And so, you know, I would perhaps not necessarily in thinking that we should play games with something as serious as governing. I would maybe roll my eyes if we were back in February And there was a kind of performative measure put on the floor and, you know, many Republicans wanted to vote for it. And then they would say, well, this is our starting point. Now let's have a conversation, you know, and then ultimately we came to some other path forward. Again, it's the end of April and then Congress is in session. We're not in session. The amount of work weeks and voting days between now and economic catastrophe is just not as many as I'd like it to be. And so the kind of principle of what's about to happen this week, or by the time listeners listen to it, have has happened this week, you know, I mean, it's a little unnecessary, but at a point in time when we're so far away from the actual, you know, crisis coming towards us, I would be willing to sort of shake my head at it. But right now, we need to be in the nuts and bolts of, of governing. So this is, you know, where I would turn my attention towards something else that got some amount of coverage, 
the Problem Solvers Caucus, of which I'm a part, put forth a plan. It's a kind of a three-step plan saying, yeah, let's go ahead and address the debt ceiling. Let's raise the debt ceiling. We got to do that. And then let's have earnest conversations kind of in these tiered ways looking towards the future about how we spend our money a little bit beyond and with greater long-term strategic focus on debt and deficit issues than, as I mentioned earlier, the you know annual budget and appropriations process. And so, you know, many Republicans signed on to that. It was in, endorsed by Democrats and Republicans both. But I would love to see a bit more urgency with that being the path. That so, we- so, yeah, why don't you think those people, those Republicans that signed on to that, like, why are they going along with the debt ceiling brinksmanship? Can you get inside their heads for me? Like, is there a path to work with them to solve this or not really? Because McCarthy wouldn't bring it to the floor. I think that this, you know, and I, I can't speak for any one particular person and sort of taking it outside of my my counterparts from problem solvers. I think if I'm thinking about some of my colleagues across the aisle that believe in governance and think the government needs to function and that we shouldn't default on our bills, I think there's also an element where there's so many extreme voices within their conference that frankly doesn't feel the need to fund the government, doesn't necessarily worry about going towards this level of brinksmanship that maybe half, like appeasing them for a minute and a half, might be necessary. It doesn't fully make sense to me, (laughs) which is why, you know, I'm like desperate to try and find a way to just get a debt ceiling vote. Because the bottom line is, if we had a vote tomorrow to raise the debt ceiling, if Speaker McCarthy would bring it, it would pass, right? You got all the Democrats who would vote for it. And I believe, and I think correctly, but you tell me, Maybe I'm naive or optimistic. I think that there would be, you know, just a few more Republicans. Six? You, that, you need five or six? That would join us to, to pass it. It's just a, a clean, clean debt ceiling. Is your sense, does McCarthy, does McCarthy reach out to Democrats? Have you guys heard from him? Or I mean, he's got his own issues on the right. But is he even trying that, thinking down the road? On this issue... I can't fully answer that. I mean, I, I presume he's talking to some people. He's sure. not talking to me, which I don't take personally. He should kind of take it personally, though. I don't know. It's like it was like when I think it was Tester got invited to the White House when Biden was there. And he was like, this is my first time at the White House. And Biden was like, what? It was a hit at Trump, obviously. But it was also kind of a hit at Obama, right? It's like, you know, if you have these jobs, you're supposed to be talking to people. And I, again, maybe Kevin McCarthy has some good old boy relationships with some of the guys who's been around for a while. But like, you'd think if he was going to call somebody to cut a deal, you know, you'd be on the short list. So he's probably not calling that many people if he's not calling you. Yeah, well, you know, I will say Trump invited me to the White yeah. House a couple times. There you as go. Is Biden, so. um, anyway, uh, okay, I want to do one more thing on the on the Repu- these Republican guys on the oversight stuff. We had Colin Allred on and and did went kind of deep on that since he's on the committee. But I'm curious your take. Is there anything that they're doing that is at all legit on the weaponization of government committee? Like, is there anything that you've looked at and heard about? And you're like, yeah, I mean, you worked in the CA, right? Like this, the, these questions about like, oh, yeah, you know, the intelligent committees have gone woke and they're, they're politicized and they're acting like, have you heard a single iota of evidence that has made you think, yeah, we should look into that. Or is it just all bullshit? It's all bullshit. And I'll say this, right? We need significant oversight of the intelligence community. I say that as a former intelligence officer, right? The role of Congress is incredibly valuable, but we have an oversight committee for the intelligence community. We have an oversight committee for the Justice Department, for Homeland Security, for State Department, right? We have, for Department of Agriculture, we have committees that do oversight of federal agencies, the very title of this committee, the weaponization of the federal government, is in and of itself a weaponization of the very premise of what it is that they're saying. You know, I, I think that it's really, really insulting, frankly, and to the men and women of the FBI or to the men and women of the intelligence community, people who work every single day to keep our country safe and in a very, very nonpartisan, like no politics I never had any concept of people's political leanings. And I served under Obama and I served under Bush and it just wasn't part of it. You disagreed with certain things that the administrations did or certain directions that that the agency went or you liked certain things or maybe gripe about that, but it wasn't even in a political lens. And I think that that's just something the 
folks on that committee, and particularly, you know, those who kind of want to find things wrong with these career public servants, like they just don't even have a notion of what it means to function in that nonpartisan, focused, mission-driven frame. So you didn't feel like a lot of your colleagues at the CIA were woke, progressive socialists, not a whole lot of that there, ideologically speaking, <laughs> or what was your sense? Actually, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. When one of my college roommates was recounting a story to me, this is, I was still at CIA, I was still undercover, I'm talking to one of my college roommates, and she's recounting to me, she said, oh, you know, I was at this blah, 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 and you came up, and, you know, this other person, I don't remember who, this other person, they said, oh, we think Abigail's really with CIA, and my college roommate starts laughing. She's like, I mean, can you believe that? That she would think you were at CIA? I mean, and I just said to her, like, what are you talking about? Right. And then went on to like, I'm a I'm a Democrat and I wear Birkenstocks. Like that was right. <laughs> literally my my friend's reasoning for why there's no world in which I could have been a CIA officer. And, and so I just the whole thing to me is comical because, you know, again, I was there functioning as a as a nonpartisan person, but it takes all types, right? And right. and so, you know, maybe if I had ever worn Birkenstocks to work, which P.S., those are just not work appropriate when you work. <laughs> Depends on where you're going undercover. Antifa? Maybe if you're doing some Antifa work, do they wear Birkenstocks? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You would know better. These are not things I know about. Okay. But I need to go deeper on you being undercover, but I just have a couple more political things we, we have to do. One is just, uh, you're, I think, a co-sponsor on a, on a fentanyl bill. And I feel like this is just another area where you are you're kind of acting in a place that's, that's kind of fraught, right? And fentanyl is like such a serious serious issue in this country. And like so many people have been affected by it. Yeah. And it has just become like a culture war flashpoint. You know, we're like a lot of the Republicans engaging on it. You know, it's just like a code for, oh, you need to be tougher on the border, right? Like versus, it's not like Kellyanne actually, you know, came up with solutions to the opioid crises. Yeah, when she was in there, it's not the person you'd hire if you're looking for a serious person, right? On the flip side, because of that, I think, or in, in somewhat because of that, like a lot of Democrats like avoid talking about the issue, right? Because they're, they're like, they don't want to be coded as a MAGA or whatever. And so you've engaged on it. And so I'm just curious, like, are there low hanging fruit things that we can and should be doing that we're not doing? Like what, what's your what's your sense of the issue? Yeah, and I think your your politics of it are exactly right, right? Like people will mention it, and it's kind of a rallying cry for folks on the right. And then conversely, because it's a rallying cry for folks on the right, sometimes folks on the left don't know how to engage. Right. And so for me, I just take the like head on approach. Okay, like a hundred percent, this is a problem. You know, colleague X across the aisle. So what are we going to do about it? And so kind of to answer your question, there's a variety of things that I think could be considered low-hanging fruit. We actually got legislation signed into law at the very end of the year, put it through with the consolidated appropriations, requiring DHS kind of a review of the technologies that they use at the border and a real forward-looking focus on interdiction capacity and capabilities. Fentanyl, of course, is very potent. Smaller amounts can be far more deadly and in the end, that means it's um, drug trafficking organizations can move it across the border um, in new and inventive ways, as opposed to you know, marijuana or cocaine or other drugs that that might be you know harder to move such a massively potent quantity so easily. And there's still more to be done. I have legislation to increase penalties for the mere possession of a pill press, because some of the problems that we see is that you know, people are making counterfeit what look like pharmaceutical drugs. They're lacing them with fentanyl and people are dying. So, you know, okay, you want to be tough on crime? Let's go right after the folks that are making fake counterfeit drugs, lacing them with fentanyl and, and killing kids and adults and the like. I do wonder about that. Is your sense is you've gone deeper on this than me and it's just on instinct, like the people on the right have all have made this such a border issue. And obviously there's a border element to it. Fentanyl's getting seized at the border, but it's so small and easy to make. Like, is it it doesn't feel like it's only a border issue, right? I mean, like, even if we totally shut down the border and, you know, did Soviet Union 1980, like, like fentanyl would still be a problem, right? Like, it's easily to manufacture here. I mean, of all of the challenges that we have at the border, fentanyl is one of them. I mean, drugs yeah. had, or, you know, drugs, other types of drugs coming in, guns headed southbound. I mean, there's a variety of issues that present themselves at the border. This is kind of a really scary one. And so, you know, yeah. it's easy if your effort is to focus on getting people scared 
saying fentanyl gets people scared. But the reality is, is that in the communities I represent, it's also killing people. And so, you know, making sure that there are even access to a test strips. So, you know, someone ideally you're not using drugs, but if you are testing to make sure that your drugs are not laced with fentanyl matters. And another piece of legislation, it was called the Summer Barrow Prevention Treatment and Recovery Act, named after a constituent. She had um, had an injury, was given opioids to contend with the pain via prescription that quickly devolved into a heroin addiction. Um, And then she used other types of drugs. She was in recovery for a short period of time. She struggled to maintain that recovery, relapsed and used fentanyl-laced cocaine and died. And her mother has been an extraordinary advocate telling this young woman's story. And so the legislation that we had signed into law at the end of last year focuses on preventing drug use, treating drug use, and then helping people in long-term recovery because relapses can occur and, you know, frequently will invest in preventing and education, invest in treatment on the spot, but then that long-term journey for someone particularly with, you know, potent drugs like opioids and the way that they really change your brain chemistry, that long-term support is so, so necessary. So this gets back to like the larger conversation related to drug yeah. use and the impact that it has on our communities. And frankly, first responders, the number of police officers and deputies and sheriffs themselves I've talked to where you're getting called again and again to the same homes because there's an overdose, right? And people just want to see their neighbors in their community healed. They don't want to you know, be there every time that it's yeah, like right. the lowest moment in that person's life. And frankly, with fentanyl in the mix, far too often those overdoses are ultimately fatal. And the hardship that even puts on the first person through the door that's supposed to be there to help people and protect people, you know, that's just an added stressor. And so I hear about it so frequently from first responders who want their neighbors to get help because it's just such a challenging time in reality. It's a brutal one. I'm glad you're engaging on it. Okay, we have to do a little punditry. Okay. You're in Virginia. Okay. All right, can we grade your governor? Your governor, a lot of buzz around him, a lot of buzz around him. He won that race. He was the great, I guess, great white hope, the great vested white hope for the Republicans for a little while. Didn't turn out as well in the midterms. So, you know, some people are turning their lonely eyes back to Glenn. How do you think he's been doing down there? Can I be a little sassy with my response and maybe give him an incomplete grade? <laughs> Sassier the better. Okay. I'm going to go with an I for incomplete. Why? You know, I think that there's been a lot of times where he's turned his attention outside of Virginia or has kind of focused on some of the uh, division efforts in Virginia, leaning into just some of the rhetoric meant to divide or, you know, bully kids, uh, bullying trans kids or, you know, focusing on, on really trying to roll back women's rights. And so we'll kind of take a step in that direction. Um, thankfully, we still have the state Senate that's been able to get in the way of real, real damage. Okay. What can Democrats learn for that? You are like, I have to tell you, in Never Trump circles, it's always like, why can't there be more Democrats like? And then before they say it, I'm like, Abigail Spanberger is what they're going to say in my head. And they, she, they say, Abigail Spanberger. Sometimes they say, let's go slotkin. But often, usually you're the first one they name. You know, Liz Cheney endorsed you, right? And so... And, and Alyssa Slotkin. And Alyssa. So there's something. I like Jason Crow. <laughs> I, I, I could name other Democrats I like in the House who are in the, in the center. But you guys have something about the brand uh, there related to Liz Cheney. So is there... What was your message and, and is continuous to your fellow party? Like, it's like, oh, man, we lost this. This is a bluish state, a bluing state we lost. Like, like what are some things that the Democrats weren't doing, you know, that created the environment for that? And, and what can you all do better, you know, in the, in the future? Well, and I think even if you look at just how I did in our district and, you know, I really outperformed prior Democrats, particularly in rural and agricultural areas. And I think it's going to sound oversimplified, but you talk to everybody. I think that at times, you know, Democrats might say, well, you know, they're probably not going to vote for me. Okay, but like I love walking into a room knowing that everybody in there is not going to vote for me. Well, I don't love it, to be clear, but to be able to say and I have had this conversation with voters. Oh, no, 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 I'm a Republican. And, you know, I remember one time I was out in my first election. I had this delightful conversation with this man and his wife at the state fair or the county fair in Amelia County. And he was lovely. They were working the ticket booth and they said, are you a Democrat? I said, yes. And they said, oh, well, we're Republicans, but but we like you. And I said, well, that's okay. Like you can be a Republican who likes me. They said, well, can you be an independent? I said, no, I'm a Democrat. We go back and back and forth. 
And the wife said, I like the things on your website. And I said, well, ma'am, maybe you're a Democrat. Oh, no. <laughs> no. And at one point in time, by the end of the conversation, they said to me, well, you know, oh, you're kind of funny for a Democrat or we like you for a Democrat or whatever. But the reality is, is that they probably just hadn't, you know, she's reading my website saying she likes everything on my website. I'm not sure the last time she actually spoke to a Democrat, right? This woman might actually be a Democrat and not even know it. But also what I do tell my my colleagues that, you know, if I think the policies that I'm pursuing are correct, then why wouldn't I take the time to explain it to people, regardless of what their political ideology is, and explain it in terms that mean something to them? You know, I mean, so frequently Democrats speak democratic language. Healthcare is a human right and climate change is an existential threat, right? Like, I don't disagree with those notions, but what if I, I've only preached to the choir there? We should all be talking about the fact that the U.S. Navy says that rising sea levels are a national security threat. Okay, extreme weather events are decimating farmers and producers across the country. Look at the flooding we just had in California, right? So regardless of how what brings you to the table? The reality is somebody somewhere, you know, everybody's having a terrible time with allergies. Like, let's talk about what pollution does for those who struggle with allergies or with asthma, right? There are all of these reasons why I can bring more people to the table. They don't have to agree with the frame of climate change as an existential threat. But if they're there on the fact that, you know, conservation practices are good for farmers and really good for land management and good for lowering input costs and raising outputs, like, translating things or, or speaking in broader terms where you're not just preaching the choir. I, th- I think that's frankly a challenge. And, you know, I, I think that we, you always, always need to say the same thing to anybody where you are, right? Like I stand by what I stand by, but recognizing that yes. people use different vocabulary. To, talk like a human. Yeah. Talk, talk like, like a, a human. human. And talking to a room full of parents about healthcare is different than talking to, you know, a room full of veterans about the VA, right? Like you have different parameters of what your area of concern is. And I think that that's a place where I'm a Democrat because I think our policies are good. And, and I like, frankly, when people sort of punch holes or attempt to punch holes in your idea, because frankly, it might just make your legislation better. I want to talk to you about being a parent. And this is related, I think, to the school's issue, right? And so I'll just, I, w- I want to ask about life as a parent, but like transitioning just as a congresswoman who's also a parent. I think that some of the complaints about schools from parents that, that like Republicans tap into is literally just like they go in and, and they're listening to the principal and it's just all of this pedagogical language, right? And it's like you go in there and you're like, ugh, like I, I want my kid to learn – social studies and and calculus or geometry, whatever it is at that level. And like, I I don't, I don't need all of these like buzzwords, but you get into these bubbles. Do you see that also in that kind of space? Like education was like the key area where young can use this. I mean, some of this is the hateful anti-gay stuff, but other of it is like Republicans trying to tee off on, you know, and Democrats feeling like they have to kind of use the teacher union language. Do you feel like that's right? Or, t- or am I am I being too touchy and is my former Republican showing? I don't think you're wrong at all. I think that especially in Virginia, the, the thing that people often forget about 2021 is that my youngest daughter was kindergarten when the school shut down, right? It's kindergarten, yeah. school shut down. And then my kids are three years apart in school. So you kind of... So how old are they now for listeners who don't know? Just turned nine, just turned 12 and 14. So third, sixth, and ninth grade now. It's great. They're wonderful. <laughs> but but thinking back to 2021, some schools had ebbed and flowed in how much they were open through the fall of 20 and the spring of 21. But all schools were opening up, depending upon, you know, some kids had been home. There was a mishmash But fall of 2021, kids hadn't yet been vaccinated, if I'm remembering correctly. There was a surge of whatever it was. I think it was Delta at the time. And so as a parent, I remember in August of 2021 being incredibly nervous because this was supposed to be over, right? The hardship of literally my kindergartner giving me a stack of ditto sheets that is she's supposed to learn from, but she can't yet really read. So like you can't do the dittos. Like 
you know, and then and then it was virtual school. And so it was just all a mess. And by 2021, like that had been the time frame when they go back to school and, you know, in the fall, that's when things are going to be normal. And then there was another surge and it wasn't normal and it was still masks and it was still uneasiness, right? And I think that the feeling that I as a parent, the anxiety that I had putting my kids on the bus, knowing they're going back to school, you know, worried about their health. You know, my youngest always had respiratory issues all through when she was a kid, like worried, worried, worried. I think that people forget that that was a foundation for just a disorienting level of stress. And then when you go, you know, a step further, and then you do have people who might be using the sort of lingo or the this or the that, like, God, my kid's been home for a year. I just, I'm doing the homework and now I'm going into the school and the teacher and like the principal's lecturing me about some uh, like inclusion thing. And I'm for inclusion, but just like teach the kid, right? Like that is sort of what you're doing. And I think like I have my children in their schools, like I have had extraordinary experiences. The teachers are extraordinary. The principals are extraordinary. Again, when you start to get into the, just even like, this is, you know, my classroom approach. I don't know what the alternative is. Like what's a classroom approach, right? Like I don't have a, this is not my background, my field of study. And so I think that sometimes, you know, even as an engaged parent who I love my children deeply. I want them to do well in school. I care about how they're doing in school. You know, I frankly get like so many incredibly communicative emails that I can like barely get through them all um, in terms of the level of communication that I get from my children's school, which I'm greatly appreciative of. I just think that that there's just been this kind of upheaval. And I think that For some parents, the takeaway from COVID, especially when kids were in virtual school, was, holy smokes, how do these teachers do this? This is amazing, right? Because to be very clear, my children do not want to learn to read from me. My middle daughter does not want to learn math from me, right? (laughs) She does not want me to be her teacher. And I think for some parents, it was a little bit of, well, you put this on me for a year, So now I'm in the game. And the bottom line is teachers are the first, you know, teachers I represent are the first to say we need, we want, we value parent education. But the way in political terms, some people tried to make it where it's teachers against parents. I can't do it alone. I I need to have an extraordinarily good relationship with my kids' teachers, particularly in areas where they've faced some challenges. And, you know, I certainly know that Teachers want engaged parents from everything from classroom volunteers to PTA to really making sure that they can help our kids be successful. For sure, for sure. What's it like for them, like having a mom that's in Congress and politics? I mean, it's like such a politicized time. I don't know. I think back to my high school and like I, I knew somebody who's I, I, the governor's daughter was close to my age and, I, you know, so I'd see her around and like, you know, there'd be a little bit of, ooh, that's the governor's daughter. But like it wasn't. I couldn't imagine any, you know what I mean? I wonder now for them, is it like, are there MAGA kids yelling at them or, or, or squat or kids are, or maybe the opposite, maybe super engaged lefty kids are like, why isn't your mom like, you know, just starting the revolution or is that not part of their life at all? Uh, what's it no, like? it's, it's definitely part of their life. My oldest does the debate and forensics team and she wanted me to come and I said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be there as a mom. And I said to her, if this gets weird, let me know, and I'll just go to the car, right? Because you may be surprised to learn this, but debate forensics kids are also my, like, demographic, right? (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) So I am in there, and my daughter recounts to me later that she saw this group of kids be like, oh, my God, it's Abigail Spanberger. That's Abigail Spanberger. And my daughter looks at them and goes, yeah, that's her. And they're like, oh, my God, did you talk to her? And she's like, yeah, it's my mom. You should go talk to her, right? And so she will always say, my oldest will always say, like, it's so sweet that, like, people want to talk to you. But, like, the negative ads and, I don't know, we're just in such a polarized time. Like, none of that stuff is, like... I mean, it, it impacts them a little bit. I mean, it, it does. It, I think it impacts them a lot. When there yeah. were the ads running saying I was a terrorist, my middle daughter came home and was like, you know, whichever friend, so-and-so said they saw that you're a terrorist, like, and I told them, you're not a terrorist. And I said, oh, oh, okay. So uh, then what happened? 
well, so they believe me. They know you're not a terrorist. And she like, <laughs> oh, man, see that America Rising hit didn't even work on second graders or however old she was. I also think maybe it's because your oppo book wasn't that good. Maybe for other people, the ads would be harder. I had a friend that is a Republican <laughs> consultant who I'll protect their anonymity. But they're like, I saw the Spamberger oppo book and liked her more after reading it. So maybe, you know, maybe for kids with a different parent, it might be a little harder. <laughs> what is your uh, what's the TikTok policy in your house? It's a burning question for me. Ah, uh, you're going to make Oh, am I getting you into trouble? Yeah, you're going to make me come clean on something. I am adamantly opposed to TikTok on government phones, and I do not have TikTok, and I do nothing to encourage people to do TikTok, but I do let my 14-year-old daughter have TikTok. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm for, I kind of agree. I'm utterly conflicted over it. I'm very, very conflicted over it. But she gave me a very I have TikTok on my phone. compelling argument about being engaged with her peers and having a normal high school experience, et cetera. I mean, honestly, I'm with her. I'm with your daughter. I, I don't I hope that I, that doesn't get you this doesn't get you into trouble, but like this is life and we're stuck with this, right? It's like, this is part of a free country. We're not China, right? Like, yeah. so we have social media that comes in. I think I have yeah. a lot of concerns about TikTok, but if TikTok is such a national security concern that it requires restricting it, then it is your job to do something about it. But as a Congresswoman, yeah. not as a mom, right? <laughs> right. Like it's like the government, like it's government's yeah. job. I mean, there's monitoring, making sure that the content they're getting is not, yeah. You know, inappropriate. There's a big CNN piece on this, but like green time limits and all the rest as a parent, et cetera. Time limits. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But I, my child's five, so I don't have to deal with this yet. But I'm like freaked out about this. I don't know. I think for girls, particularly, yeah. It, like it feels like it, it may, there's a little extra weight to the challenge on how to manage the social media stuff. Well, and one of the other challenges, even for, for kids, you know, my older daughter's ages in particular, COVID struck right at those points in time when they started really like, hanging out as opposed to having play dates, yeah. right? And so a lot of their social engagement right. switched to FaceTime or playing games online together or, uh, you know, social media. So you have to monitor it, monitor it closely because it really does, right. um, you know, there's a lot of risks of bullying and online bullying, et cetera. But it, it also has some benefits. But it's how they engage. I worry about the algorithm, but that is where the monitoring yeah. and where the parenting comes in. I worry about what it's feeding them. The data stuff, it's like there's a funny, I'm, I'm on TikTok, so that's all this. There's a funny TikTok about TikTok, which is like the Chinese are getting my data. And then the next screen is a picture of them like watching Fleetwood Mac singing Silver Spring over and over again. It's like <laughs> the Chinese got me. Like I like Fleetwood Mac and I like drag race and I like basketball stats. Like, you know, I, I'm just kind of like, I don't know. The data part. It's a little bit the point that my daughter has made as well, like where she tries to make the argument that she's not so sure that she should be bothered if the Chinese government knows that she likes how to grow plants and cook bread and whatever you know, Taylor Swift or like, Doja Cat or how to grow plants, <laughs> bread. That's so weird. Cottage core. You have a cottage. You're great, growing, raising a cottage core daughter. Okay, wait, we have to do CIA. We're running out of time. Yeah, yeah. You're undercover with your college roommate. Like, I know okay. nothing. This is probably how the CAA likes it. I know nothing about this. Like, I don't, I, I don't have any CAA friends. So I don't know. Maybe you do, and you just don't know it. Maybe exactly. Great point. So, like, you, you were in college. I'm going to fast forward through your bio for yeah. real. You went to Germany. Yep. You wanted to get into the CIA. You're learning yep. German. 9/11 happens. You're like, so I'm, I'm going to apply. Then it takes you a while to get in. So you're in your mid 20s. I forget what happened in your early 20s. We can skip through it. We'll talk about it in the green room. But uh, I was a federal agent. Okay, there you go, federal agent. Then you get into the CIA in your mid twenties, and so then you keep. Yeah. You got a, your wine club friend. You got to tell them that you're still a federal agent, or what was your cover? Or they told you that you became a yoga teacher. Like what happens? Well, it's got to be believable. Okay. So, <laughs> although my sister, I have I have two sisters. One is a yoga instructor. She's the infinitely uh, calmer, calmer. Maybe she's CIA. Yeah. Well, uh, we're not allowed to know your cover story. Uh, so legally, um, I I cannot confirm what I did for a cover. So mm -hmm. I I had an affiliation with another government agency. I worked overseas. I worked at home. I worked on various different projects. And so I had the whole scope of things that I was allowed to tell people, none of it which was true, which was very, very interesting. At, at one point in time, when I was first married, my mother-in-law took me aside because she was convinced that my husband worked for CIA. So she tells me, you know, he had gotten a job offer from NSA and he didn't take the internship, and now he does this other thing. And my husband has a—he's got a yeah. cool job. He's an engineer, but he doesn't work for CIA. And so she's telling me this. I'm saying, "Oh my yeah, goodness, no way!" 
right? Meanwhile, at this very moment, I'm the one regularly lying to my mother-in-law that I work for CIA. Does that mess with your brain? It kind of reminds me of being in the closet. I don't know. You know, it kind of reminds me of like being at the bar and somebody being like, oh man, that girl's hot. And me having to be like, yeah, sure, totally. Love that. <laughs> I don't know. And that kind of messed with my brain. It's a different thing though. You're choosing it. I, I don't know. There's less weight to it, but. Yeah, I was choosing it. I thought it was for a good cause. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's mission focused. So I think it was, you know, my own choice to put a little bit of compartmentation in my brain. Yeah. So the analogy doesn't ring true with me, but I'll defer to you because that's your lived experience. But you just endeavor to kind of be, you know, have people ask as few questions as possible about your job because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, nothing you're saying is true. Was anybody mad at you when you came out of the closet, so to speak, when you're like, hey, I'm not a whatever this cover story was. I don't actually like bread making. <laughs> uh, that was part of the deal. Uh, no, you know, it was funny. I did have a couple different things. What was a really big deal is so when I first left the agency, I was going through this process of trying to get my employment declassified. And it's a lengthy process. And it's a hurdle of a process. And you know, I had known some people who had gone through it, so I was pretty optimistic that I would get my employment declassified. But I have this really good friend who I've been friends with since we were kids. And so he calls me one day to essentially kind of have a little bit of an intervention because he's trying to set me up with all these folks because he, what he knows is, you know, I decided to leave government service. He thought I was doing one job, decided to move back to Virginia. That was true. And What he didn't know is that I was waiting for my employment to be declassified because I really didn't want to, I had a full, cleared, though fictitious resume, and I really didn't want to start my new life over with a fake resume. Like, I didn't want to go in, because that's where I thought it would get weird, going into an employer, lying, essentially. I mean, you know, and verifiably, because I was legally obligated to do so, but, but essentially going through the process of getting a job not telling people my true experience. And so this friend calls me one day and he said, you know, is something wrong? I just have to talk to you. You're normally such a go-getter. Like you're refusing to do these like meetings with these companies that I'm trying to like help you, you know? And, and I finally, I was like, okay, I do think it's going to come through that I'm going to get my deployment declassified. And so I said, okay, I've got to tell you something. It's not that I have like all of a sudden lost like all of my go-getter-y sort of spirit but I am waiting for my employment to be declassified because I used to work at CIA and I'm waiting for that to happen. And so, you know, his reaction was hysterical because he had actually visited our family when we were overseas. And he's like, wait a second, I met your friends and I met these people. And What's true? Yeah, everything is a lie. Do you still even like Mumford and Sons? Was that part of the cover? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so it was, it was funny. I did have... Even once I got my employment declassified, I still didn't actually, like, if it wasn't relevant, I didn't tell people. And so I had been a Girl Scout leader for a while, and I was talking to one of the parents who I had a pretty good relationship with, and I was saying, oh, you know, I may not have mentioned this. This is actually what I used to do for a job, and now I'm going to be running for Congress, so I wanted to flag it for you because it's going to be very kind of front and center. And somebody said to me, like, this explains the ropes course. (laughs) You excelled at the ropes course? Um, I might have been a little bit uh, hyper-encouraging uh, to some of the girls about yeah, you know, believing in themselves on the ropes courses and such. Yeah, maybe a little bit better than, than you might have expected for a Henrico County mom. Okay, last thing on CIA, Havana syndrome. Yeah. We can keep it short on this, but like I look at this and I think to myself, I have some friends who said that they have been exposed to it, so I, I'm not judging anyone, but I look at them like, I have always thought I was allergic to mayonnaise. And then somebody informed me that Caesar dressing has the same ingredients as mayonnaise. And the next time I had Caesar dressing, I threw up. And I was like, this is psychosomatic. I've been eating Caesar dressing all my life. And when I hear about Havana syndrome, I think about my Caesar dressing experience. So you tell me whether that is wrong and whether you think this is there's something more to it. I'm going to categorically say it's wrong. Okay. And I'll say this, because I have friends who have woken up in hotel rooms in places like Moscow and in other places, violently ill, the room is spinning, they can't stand up. That didn't happen to me on the Caesar salad, I have to admit. I would hope not. Yeah. That I would say you are indeed allergic. And their lives are never the same. Wow. And there are multiple people, I mean, people who have had to leave careers that they loved, that they believed in. People who, I mean, when you're talking about like tough as nails, the things they have endured, terrorist 
threats to themselves, to their families, living in war zones for long term, you know, living in CIA bases where there's not a lot in the early days of the war in Afghanistan, right? Like people who would not simply kind of have their brains go to a place of suggestion. And so, you know, certainly I do think that when we're on high alert, okay, please report any circumstances. I think it's important that anyone report anything that might kind of seem concerning. And there's been many, many people that say, like, I think it's nothing but just want to report it. And so there are, you know, many, many potential cases that have been reported. But kind of some of the, the central cases that really got the ball rolling on trying to dig into, you know, if there's no other explanation for why someone would be suffering from traumatic brain injury and why someone's ability to function is just forever changed, it is too real in in people's lives that, you know, they had faced some of the craziest hurdles and challenges before and just powered through. And this has been what has kind of disrupted and ended a lot of of their type of normalcy. Uh, you're get, you are so good. You're getting saved on the on the hardest rapid fire questions because we are out of time. I could do a whole hour on Afghanistan. By the way, didn't even get to Afghanistan. So maybe another time we can have you back do another bulwarky thing. So you get two rapid fire questions, then we're out. Okay, ready? Number one, everyone gets it. Okay. Something you change your mind about as an adult. Us never Trumpers get very comfortable with with changes with wisdom gathering. But I'll let you think about it. I'm explaining why. You know, like we. Oh gosh, something as an adult, I change my mind. Yeah, you change your mind. Could be anything. Doesn't have to be politics. I really love strawberry jam, and I used to hate it when I was a kid. That it's mushrooms for me, though. It just happened. I've hated mushrooms my whole life, and I just started eating oyster mushrooms. They're fantastic. What didn't you like about strawberry jam? Um, it was just kind of too clumpy. Too gloopy. Are you a picky eater? No, not really. I just preferred grape jelly when I was a kid. Okay. You're getting one f- a hard one then to finish because I'm not satisfied with the strawberry jam answer. I was going to ask you, you're, you're the favorite Republican to beer with, but we've already done Chip Roy, even if that's not him. So the question is, President Obama famously said, you have a drink with Mitch McConnell. I'm not going to do it. Who would you least like to have a drink with on the Republican side? Least like to? Least. CIA torture, at least. I know, this goes against your nature. I know. I, it was an easy question. You were prepared for most because you work across the aisle, unlike your colleagues. But there has to be one that you're like, really? You're going to make me do this? You know what, though? I live by the mantra that even a broken clock is right twice a day. But Okay, so yeah. who is the broken clock? <laughs> no. yeah, I'll, I, yeah, I have no problem. I'll, I'll go with Jim Jordan on this one. Two for two! Jim Jordan is two for two. Colin Alderett also said Jim Jordan. He was a little less kind of, you know, pained about it because okay. you're a good person at heart and want to have lunch. Wait, does that mean I get to have a beer with Colin Alderett while we're rejecting Jim Jordan? You guys should have one together. I've kept you yeah. longer than I should have. Congressman Spanberger, thank you so much. So grateful for your time. I spared you the uh, final rapid-fire question about naming the favorite chapter of my book that you claim to have read. I don't want. I'm not. We're not doing it. I'm not giving you a book report. We're just. I'm just going to take it as a word that it happened. I'm going to send you my finished on Kindle so you can see I actually read it. Good. So I can. Okay. I, I believe it. I read it on a coda with a bunch of Republicans. I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I look forward to. And I will be now bugging you about social media tips for my daughter as as she gets older. You're ahead of me. You've got. Three. I have a lot more questions for you, but we'll uh, we'll, we'll keep that in the green room. And uh, for everybody else, we'll be back on Wednesday for the normal next level, not the normal, the standard, the every Wednesday. Your your favorite trio, Sarah and JVL, and we'll have another guest uh, next Sunday who will not be as charming as Abigail Spanberger, but probably will like multiple types of jam. <laughs> we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.